um, I was here to read mathematics. Um, statistics was an option um, in the mathematics course, and I went to the first lecture and thought that is definitely not for me. So statistics was not part of uh, what I was interested in. I considered myself a pure mathematician and didn't didn't think of ever having to use maths in any meaningful, practical way. Um, and then, uh, through a series of accidents, I met a, a group of epidemiologists in London uh, at a time when I was a single mother with two young children and needed something that will bring some of the shekels in that was needed. Um, and they were happy for me to work at home, and all they needed was calculation of percentages, which I reckon I could just about remember how to do. Um, and the topic was so fascinating. Um, epidemiology, uh, uh, as I'll show you, is uh, a, a putting together a story and trying to work out the detective part of it. Um, so I ended up um, part of how you do that is using statistics. So from the point in St. Anne's where I threw away statistics, I ended up uh, embracing it. And I think um, the background in St. Anne's was in terms of uh, fostering inquiring minds. And it, it was the uh, facility to talk with all sorts of different disciplines. Uh, here and in other colleges that was very important. Um, so that's uh, what epidemiology is, or it's one of the definitions. Um, and as an example, uh, you can look at trends over time. Um, and at the time at which I'm going to talk about the study that I founded, uh, this was what was uh, happening in terms of time trends the infant mortality rate had just dropped dramatically so that it was very, very low. Um, but at the same time, other things were rising in prevalence. So um, between 1969 and 1985, you could see that the prevalence of diabetes in children had risen more than uh, twofold. Uh, in parallel uh, between 73 and 88, uh, asthma was obviously increasing and doubling. Uh, that wasn't just a diagnostic um, uh, function. Uh, if you looked at which kids were wheezing, that was increasing. If you looked at their lung function, that was deteriorating in general. Uh, if you did something with biology and looked at IgE levels, which is a measure of uh, atopy or allergy, uh, or a marker of it, that uh, this was a study in Japan that used the same methodology over the years that had increased uh, and nearly doubled. So although mortality was dropping, something was going on that was increasing chronic disease. Um, and obviously, although all of those things had a genetic component and tended to run in families, uh, something else had to uh, answer the question of, of an increase in uh, chronic disease. So it had to be something to do with the environment, um, we thought. And so uh, by environment, uh, we 
um, mean anything really out there that might influence you. Uh, and the question is when uh, should we be looking for the environment? And most studies at the time were only looking at the point at which a diagnosis was made to see whether uh, they could detect anything different in the past year or so uh, that had happened to the child that might have influenced that disorder. But there was increasing information that what was going on prenatally and in infancy may well have effects uh, later on. And indeed, from animal experiments, what was happening before conception and in previous generations, but that at this time was going to be far too difficult to tackle. So environment, we decided, could include chemical contaminants, the socio-economic environment, um, psychosocial influences, diet, infectious agents, and of course smoking, alcohol and caffeine, and a number of other things. So there's a huge, great list of different environments that may be having an effect on the health and development. At that time, most big studies um, were focused on particular diseases. So you'd have uh, a study of childhood cancer, say, uh, or um, study of asthma, study of uh, diabetes, but um, they hadn't got this longitudinal information that you would need to try and look back at what was happening. Um, and uh, we decided that the best way to do this was to look at all the influences that might affect the development of the child um, from as early impossible, uh, as possible. Now, if you say to funders that you want to look at something uh, and look at everything that might be affecting uh, a child and its development, um, and you show them an objective that uh, is the one that we had, which and still have, which is to understand the ways in which the physical and social environment interact over time with genetic inheritance to affect health, behavior, and development in children and into adulthood. So we were planning to follow these uh, children as long as we could. So that affected the design and what we wanted to look at. And we uh, have a picture, uh, which I won't go into the details of, but all sorts of influences that one expects would interact with themselves as well as with the genotypes um, to influence uh, a variety of different outcomes. And I don't know why that second thing comes along there. Um, including criminality and schizophrenia, uh, whether they hold down a job, uh, I haven't got it on the list, but whether they can hold down a marriage or what their parenting is like. Huge variety of Anyway, um, we've got this grand design, um, which uh, with a, a, a proper um, protocol and uh, just how it would work. And we got together a group of the major funders within the country in 1989 and 1990. 
um, with the hope that we'd just tell them what an exciting thing this was and they would just um, donate vast amounts of money that uh, would keep us going. Um, the answer was we won't provide core funding, which is what you need to, to collect the information you need, but we will consider funding projects based on specific hypotheses. Uh, and the words fishing expedition kept coming into uh, the um, vocabulary of the funders. And at that time, in, in the late 1980s, um, it was really damning to be called a fishing expedition. Um, I keep pointing out that you don't catch fish without a fishing expedition, but uh, and, and having appropriate nets. But that that was what uh, what happened. Um, so uh, you know, there's the question of which hypotheses do we pick, and you look at what other people get funded on, and some of it's guesswork. Some of it's logical deduction. Um, divine inspiration might come into it, but what we were after is observing what actually happens and then uh, formulating hypotheses on what the mechanisms might be. So we were coming at it from a different way, uh, but to conform, we, we also went through the um, proposing projects uh, for funding. And um, if anybody here knows how you get money from for grants for research, you write enormous quantities of, of paper. About one in five might get funded. Um, so by 2005, we had 235 grants funded. We had to get small amounts of money and put them all together to actually make this study work. And the study, as uh, Lena said, is called uh, the Aiden Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. It's known academically as ALSPAC, but by the people taking part and by many of the populations around the world as children of the 90s. And the way it was designed uh, was that we uh, enrolled people, they were eligible according to their expected date of delivery, which had to be between the 1st of April 1991 and the end of 92. And they had to have a mother who was resident in what was Avon at the time, but is no longer Avon. Um, and in fact, we enrolled almost 85% of the eligible population, um, of whom nearly 14,000 took part. <coughs> and what we uh, did uh, was collect information in a variety of different ways. I'm not going to go into all the details, um, but the uh, <coughs> self-completion questionnaires were the major part for the first uh, many years of the study, um, and these were um, A5 size questionnaires uh, that people got sent. Um, they, uh, the shortest ones were about 32 pages long, um, and the average might have been 48. And um, the mothers were fantastic at filling them out. Uh, during pregnancy, they got four. 
because we wanted all sorts of different details as the women went through pregnancy, both about the pregnancy itself, but also their whole background uh, to get their employment history, uh, their contact with various chemicals, their social circumstances, uh, even down to the fine details of what had happened in childhood uh, and how happy their childhood had been. Um, and at the same time, if the mother would like her partner to be involved, he got a, she gave him a questionnaire, and I say him, uh, but if, if it was a female partner, that uh, was covered as well. And then um, uh, we watched who was being delivered and sent a congratulations card. Uh, and uh, some mothers had forgotten the information we gave them early on, which was, we're going to carry on following you up. And they thought this was the end of it, but depending on whether it was a boy or a girl, they got another questionnaire within four weeks, and then at eight weeks after the birth, they got another one. Um, some of the questionnaires was focused on the development and health of the child, and some on the development of the mother, and particularly looking at her uh, anxiety and depression. And, uh, very uh, detailed questions on the psychological mental health of the mother and of her partner. Um, um, so the father, usually father, father figure, uh, was sent questionnaires as well. And we continued like that um, until uh, the child was five, at which point we were getting complaints from the children saying, why aren't we having these things? We're part of this study, so we started sending the children questionnaires as well. Um, and at five, it was more of a colouring book, but very soon it turned into questions that they could answer, and uh, answer with very valuable um, details. So we also collected biological samples this was important because there are a number of environmental uh, factors that you can only detect with biological samples. The mother won't be able to report them. Uh, and we have stores and stores, if you can imagine, uh, 10,000 placentas, whole placentas. Anybody who knows the size of the placenta <laughs> might have their mind boggling. <laughs> um, teeth are much easier. Nail clippings are a piece of cake. Um, so, uh, and then uh, we uh, started examining the children uh, with hands-on assessments. So they would be and still are being invited to our clinics um, and we take blood and we do all sorts of things, um, including um, uh, doing a, a whole body x-ray, a very low uh, dose. Um, which measures their bone density and bone growth, uh, as well as, um, we don't tell them the results of uh, these, but how much of their body mass is fat, you can tell from this. Uh, but we give them all sorts of psychological and psychometric tests. We measure their IQ, uh, we test their hearing and their vision, and that has continued for a very long time. Now, um, one of the most important things that, or most, 
important to me things that happened during this time was that to continue collecting all this data, uh, we actually ran out of money every so often. Um, and the university uh, had this quandary as to whether to shut us down, which would mean what do we do with grants that we've half spent and can't finish, etc. And how, how can the university face the local uh, public uh, about that? Or um, are we allowed to go into debt? Uh, and Sir John Kingman, who was a fellow in the mathematics department here at St. Anne's, uh, was the vice chancellor at that point. He had a background in statistics and genetics and was absolutely key in allowing us to carry on. Uh, but interestingly, that was carry on, but don't let the rest of the university know because every other research group will want to be able to get into debt. Um, I'm glad to say eventually we no longer have a debt, although uh, that took 10 years or so. Now, the ultimate aim of a birth cohort study uh, is really to identify factors influencing health and development um, that we can use to pre prevent or um, develop preventive interventions to put in place. So that is one of the essential elements of uh, this study. Uh, and although the study has been collecting data now for 20 years, and we have over 700 papers published. Um, we're still developing much of this, and there are many, many questions to be answered. What I've picked is just a few of um, the results we have. Uh, one is connected with the diet, and this is the diet of the mother. Now, um, if you go back to my grandmother's sort of generation, um, she would have told me to eat fish in pregnancy because it's good for brains and good for the development of the fetus. What they developed, particularly in America, was fish is dangerous in pregnancy because it's got mercury in it and mercury damages the brain as a fetus. And the official recommendation in the States was do not eat more than two portions of fish a week if you're pregnant. And that got interpreted by pregnant women as um, that you shouldn't eat fish at all. Fish is dangerous. So many people who were normally eating some fish stopped eating fish at all. That... Um, in Britain, uh, didn't apply so much at all, although the mercury statement was there. Um, and in our study, uh, there were a large number of people who certainly ate more fish than two portions a week. And we looked at a number of different uh, measures of the brain development of the children. And I am just going to show you one. This is measuring the risk of the child having a low verbal IQ. Um, and by low, we mean below the 25th centile. 
and artificially um, putting at one the risk to uh, a child who had three or more, or whose mother ate three or more portions of fish, you can see that those children whose mothers ate no fish at all had much higher risk of having low verbal IQ. Uh, and if they ate between uh, one and two portions, they were somewhere in between. But the message is quite the reverse than what the recommendations are. And that um, is gradually changing the recommendations in the States. Um, it has uh, been quoted uh, in a, a large number of um, documents um, and is on the uh, food uh, recommendations in this country. Uh, They've taken away the don't eat more than three. They've said eat at least two, and it's good for the brain of the child. So and that is, um, has resulted in letters to Congress and all sorts of things. And Congress is agitating that this gets put into a, a, the official recommendations. It takes years and years to change the American uh, recommendations. I'm sure it's the same in Britain. Um, so that we know we've, we've uh, had a, a really good effect on. Um, we wanted to look at all sorts of common things that people were using. Uh, things that changed in the environment. We use different chemicals in our homes and everywhere. So we, we looked at what women were using in the home and how often they were using um, this lot of chemicals, um, and we uh, created a score depending on how often they used each of these. Uh, blow me, it's normally distributed, which I thought was unexpected. Um, and if you look at and compare the group of children in the lowest 10% of that distribution, with the children in the upper 10%, um, the results for looking at uh, persistent wheeze, um, and if you looked at uh, diagnosed asthma, you'd get the same. Um, the results show an over twofold increased rate of asthma in that group. Uh, and that's allowing for everything we could think of. Now, um, associations like that don't prove causation um, and it's difficult to know how you're going to change anybody in that. Um, we tried to unwrap it by finding out which of those chemicals might have been uh, the ones that caused the effect, um, but they all did. It was a combination of the lot. There's no way you could just say it's only aerosols or carpet cleaners. So that's something that's there, but I don't know what to do with it. It's published. Um, some of the stuff we looked at uh, has been uh, to do with um, measure of the biological samples. And this is looking at um, the level of the mother's testosterone during pregnancy. And we had a rating of the young children 
um, which is called the gender play behavior. Um, and so um, that divides into um, a, a masculine score, which has a lot of play to do with romping around and climbing trees and um, uh, shooting people, and a feminine score, which is playing with dolls and dressing up as princesses. And, um, and that is, again, is a, a normally distributed score. But if you divide it into three groups um, the, uh, and look at the girls, uh, the girls who turned out to be most feminine in their behavior had mothers with much lower testosterone than the rest of the population, which isn't something you're going to do anything with, but it's a very useful background to understanding uh, uh, how gender um, behavior develops and what we uh, will be doing is following these children to see, following these girls to see how their gender behavior develops during um, late adolescence and into adulthood. Now, I mentioned that we uh, measured the anxiety of the mothers during pregnancy. Uh, we also measured her anxiety at different times during the child's life. Um, uh, but the key uh, relationship we have is that the mothers who uh, were most anxious during pregnancy are more likely to have children with behavior problems. And this is just one of the results from that. It shows that the uh, boys uh, born to mothers with uh, high anxiety late in pregnancy are twice as likely to be hyperactive. And uh, disruptive behavior goes on in that group. Uh, we're just measuring uh, the children's cortisol at, um, oh, we've measured it, we're just analyzing at, at age 15. And there's a biological response to that maternal anxiety in pregnancy that you can detect in, in the way that the children respond to stress. So what goes on in pregnancy is really terribly important. Um, but what goes on in infancy can be as well. Um, things have changed a lot since I was pregnant. Um, when it was um, the rule almost that uh, if a woman is pregnant, you don't get her anxious, you don't trouble her, you, you make her rest and so on. Nowadays, obstetric um, behavior is such that a pregnant mother goes through tests, she doesn't, she's told she'll have this test and that will see if the baby's all right and this will see if the baby's all right. And they end up, uh, or can end up, uh, extremely anxious um, and uh, it's something that I think the uh, obstetricians uh, need to pay attention to somehow. So I was uh, just going to um, end this group of slides with the major study, yeah I'm nearly finished, <laughs> um, which is looking at what happens after the child's born. And peanut allergy was something we studied in this group. Uh, peanut allergy is 
or was relatively new at this time. Um, and uh, what we discovered was that these were children who developed peanut allergy who had been given early on um, oils that contained uh, um, creams that contained arachisol. Arachisol is peanut oil. Nobody understood why these children were allergic to peanuts uh, the first time they, they were given them to eat, but they'd actually been exposed um, to peanut oil very early on through broken skin. These were ordinary ointments, ordinary baby creams. I won't go on with that. I'll end up with um, the uh, excitement of doing this study, and uh, we try and make it exciting for the people who are taking part, because they won't take part anymore if it isn't um, exciting. Uh, and everybody, I think, who takes part enjoys most of it. Um, but that's just a flavor. Uh, there's a website that you can easily look up. All 700 publications, if you want. <laughs> Thank you. Jean, as she's explained, founded that group, that Children of the 90s study. So she was all the way through until the end of 2005, both scientific and executive director. Um, and of everything from fighting to funding to you know, guiding the research and everything. I did notice that uh, I read somewhere that when you stepped down, they actually made that two separate jobs. Yes. <laughs> so that's very impressive. Okay, so now um, another one of our alums, Linda Partridge, was uh, in Zimbabwe when she was at St Anne's. She's director of the Institute of Healthy Aging at UCL. And she works on the biology of ageing, and again, there's no point in me talking about it, she's going to tell us, but um, she's very, very well known in this field. In fact, her work has contributed effectively to a paradigm shift, the way that we think about studying ageing. It's really very influential. Um, she's received a number of awards, so as I'm doing, I'm just going to give you some highlights, but uh, for example, she was awarded the Crunian Lectureship by the Royal Society in 2009, which is the premier biological sciences lectureship. It's a bit of a, a sort of uh, mixed chalice because you get this award and what you have to do is then give a big lecture and to do some work to uh, get a prize afterwards. Um, she's a fellow of the Royal Society, the Academy of Medical Sciences of various other organisations and also founding director of the new Max Planck Institute for Biology of Ageing and that's based in Cologne. So she's one busy lady and I'm very pleased that she's able to be here today. Thank you very much, Nina. And it's an enormous pleasure to be part of the celebration and have the opportunity to contribute to the discussion. And I'll try and be fairly brief so that we do have plenty of time for discussion. So I've called the talks A New Science of Ageing because, as Nina's indicated, it's an area where our understanding is changing quite rapidly. Of course, the ageing process has fascinated philosophers, medics, scientists down the ages. And one of my favourites, because of his connection with the Royal Society, is actually Robert Boyle. And way back in the 1660s, he wrote a wish list of the scientific problems that he would like to see solved in his lifetime. And top of it was the prolongation of life and the recovery of youth, uh, which, of course, he didn't live long enough to see. But, in fact, it's been going on very steadily, starting in the middle of the 19th century. So... Because of improvements in public health and lifestyle, nutrition, people are staying healthier as they age, and as we're all familiar, they're living longer. 
And this is a very typical population figure, what's going on in the UK. So the population's expanded, but at the same time, so is the proportion of people in it of older age. So the red bits of the pie diagrams, there are people over 65. So the absolute number and the proportion is increasing. And it's part of what's been a worldwide trend, which, as I say, started in the middle of the 19th century. And it's actually gone on at a more or less linear rate of two and a half years per decade ever since. So life expectancy is increasing by six hours a day, every day. And various individuals and organizations have made predictions of where that trend was going to top out. That's what's illustrated with the horizontal lines. So where the intrinsic limitation on human lifespan was going to turn out to be. But what's happened is that the trend's just shot straight past it and actually is continuing to do so. It's not clear what the limit will be. Although, of course, changes in childhood and, and so on may mean that we're about to see a generation because of the increase in obesity and diabetes where perhaps this trend slows down or even stops. But at the moment, there's no sign that that's happening. And, of course, it's led to some remarkable lifespans. This is the official world record holder. You've probably seen her before. Uh, a French woman who uh, was born in the south of France and died in 1997 at the age of about 122 and a half. She actually met Van Gogh in her father's shop. He used to go there to buy paint. And she's an interesting case because uh, she's like many centenarians. She comes, or she came from a long-lived family, and human lifespan's about 25% heritable on average, although that genetic variation tends to be, to be um, focused in a few very long-lived families, and she came from one of those. But she was also very typical of centenarians in another way, which is that she was not a particularly um, good advertisement for the kind of healthy lifestyle one might expect. She actually gave up smoking when she was 119. <laughs> So who knows what her secret was? But of course, I mean, this kind of thing is to be celebrated. People are staying healthy, and so they're living longer. But it's coming with a bad press because of the very obvious downside, which is that we're seeing a big increase in the diseases that come at later ages. So this is a set of projections actually from the LSE and the Institute of Psychiatry a few years ago of what the prevalence of dementia would be by the middle of this century. And it's 1.7 million out of a population of about 60 million. Of course, associated with huge personal costs to sufferers and their carers and their families and friends, but also extremely expensive. And this is the tip of an iceberg of what's happening with aging-related disease. Basically, all the major killers and chronic diseases are very, very strongly related to age. And that, combined with the increasing proportion of old people in the population, declining birth rates, has actually led to a, re a recent estimate that Britain's at extreme fiscal risk, with a perfect storm of the levels of public debt and the increasing cost of people like me, the baby boomers, who are increasing prevalence in the population. So that's the policy background to the science. And obviously what the scientific challenge here is, is to try and understand better the biological mechanisms of ageing and the way in which ageing is acting as a risk factor for disease, and to try and use that knowledge to intervene to improve people's health as they get older. So that's the main aim of research in this area. It's not to make people live longer. That's happening already without any intervention from science. What we want to do is to keep them healthier for a greater proportion of their lifespan. But until recently, the prospects for doing that haven't looked terribly rosy 
And that's because aging is just such an extremely complicated process. If you look at what happens in people as they get older, I mean, thank goodness not everybody gets all of these things going wrong, but these are the things that can go wrong in different tissues as people age. And it presents a, a picture almost seemingly of intractable complexity. It seems very unlikely that you could find a simple intervention like a, a mutation in a gene or a drug or perhaps changes in nutrition, other environmental interventions that would capture that whole basket of damage and pathology and slow it down simultaneously. So that carries a very pessimistic message and it would carry another one as well, which is for these guys, because these are the workhorses of modern biomedicine, they're the laboratory model organisms. And typically if you want to understand a process like gene expression, genetic transmission, metabolism, you start simple in a single cell yeast or even a bacterium and figure out what's going on there. And then you tackle the multicellular invertebrates and then finally go on to the much more complicated situation in the mouse. But again, it seemed intuitively very unlikely that these animals would have commonalities in their mechanisms <coughs> of aging. We know that for other things they do. You can often take a gene from one of these organisms, put it in the genome of another, and it works just fine there. That there's extraordinary evolutionary conservation of biological mechanisms in many contexts. But I think intuitively people thought this was unlikely to be true for aging. And what's changed recently is that this rather pessimistic view of what's going on has been challenged. And the person who started it all was actually my hero um, in this. He was a man called Michael Klaas. And what he did very simply was to take nematode worms, feed them a chemical mutagen, which made simple lesions in the genetic material, and asked whether he could isolate strains of worms, mutant worms, that were long-lived. And he found that he could, one of his mutations illustrated there. So just a single lesion in one gene can make these animals live longer. It's an increase in healthy lifespan. They're still wriggling around when the controls are dead. It's not just an extension of the moribund period at the end of life. And the initial crop of mutants that were isolated were in genes that made this worm insulin-like insulin growth factor signaling pathway. So already known about in mammals because of the role of matching the metabolism and the growth of the organism to its nutrient stasis. This is a nutrient-sensing pathway. So that was all very interesting, but the world actually didn't need a long-lived worm. What was important was that these effects turned out to be evolutionarily conserved. Um, first of all, in Drosophila, which is somewhat more complicated invertebrate, the fruit fly, um, this is just one of the mutants that we studied in our lab at UCL. Again, you can see the extension of lifespan in these flies that have lost either one or two copies of one of the genes in the insulin signaling pathway. And you can see that just as in mammals, the signaling network also affects growth. Um, flies that have lost both copies of Chico are small, although we know that dwarfing is not necessary for the increase in lifespan. We can knock down insulin signaling when the flies are fully grown and they still live long. Uh, but the reason this was interesting was that it was a straw in the wind that perhaps we might be looking at similar things in mammals. And several studies have now shown that this is the case. So this is actually a Chico mouse, uh, studied by our consortium in London. Again, it's lost both copies of the mouse equivalent of Chico, and you can see the extension of lifespan. And very importantly, the person who led this study, Dominic Withers and, and Colin Selman as well, did a very careful assessment of the health of these mice as they aged. And what they found was that there was a very surprisingly broad spectrum improvement in health, things that you wouldn't think had anything in common with each other. 
So as they went through middle and old age, the mutant mice had better glucose handling and they were more insulin sensitive, better immune profile. They were much more agile. You can put a mouse on a rapidly rotating rod and see how long it can hang on for. The mutants maintained useful levels of it for longer. They had delayed osteoporosis and cataracts. And you can just see in the control mouse on the right, so these two are littermates, females, at the age of about 800 days, which is really getting on for a mouse. You can see the cataracts in the controls and also the ulcerative dermatitis on the head and mane. About 40% of them get that at some point during ageing. The mutant mice are completely protected, they never get it. So just what we weren't expecting to see, a broad spectrum improvement in health. And I think this is what the excitement is about. It's these kinds of findings that it seems to be possible to intervene in the ageing process to reduce aiding-related loss of function and pathology across different systems. Of course, what we'd like to know is what's going on in humans. And very much along the lines of the sorts of things that Jean's been talking about, the way that's usually assessed is by looking at natural genetic variants in humans. So taking the genes that are the human equivalents of the ones that have been shown to have these effects in the laboratory model organisms, and then say, well, if we look at natural genetic variation in those genes, is it associated with survival to advanced ages, 90, 100, even 110? And the answer's, I mean, it's very early days yet, but it's starting to look as though yes. So particularly these FOXO genes have turned up in multiple independent studies now. And what the FOXO genes encode is something called a transcription factor. It's a molecule that alters the expression of genes in the nucleus of the cell, and what the insulin-insulin-like growth factor pathway does is to alter the activity of these FOXO transcription factors. They're the effector of insulin action. And it turns out that genetic variation in those genes is associated with survival to advanced ages in humans. So it's beginning to look as though we really have a conserved effect here. I've already mentioned that this is a nutrient-sensing pathway, and almost certainly it's involved in mediating the effects of an intervention that's been known about for much longer, which is dietary restriction. So it was first discovered in rodents way back in the 1930s that if you force them to eat less than they would choose to do so themselves, you can get big increases in lifespan. And because it's been known about for such a long time, their health has been very thoroughly assessed during aging. And they show a quite astonishingly broad-spectrum improvement. They're protected against almost all aging-related conditions, uh, with the possible exception of problems with wound healing. They don't survive trauma very well. But apart from that, just with normal aging-related disease, they're very, very strongly protected. And just in the last couple of years, it's turned out that this is true also in rhesus monkeys. So this was a very long-term study, because these animals can live 40, 50 years, um, conducted by the National Institute of Aging. And what they found was that the dietary restricted monkeys lived longer, but were also protected against um, malignancies, um, brain shrinkage. They showed much better brain function during aging. Their glucose handling and insulin sensitivity are better. They have less inflammation, less sarcopenia. Again, this very broad spectrum improvement in health. We'll probably never know for sure whether dietary restriction extends lifespan in humans because you can't do randomised controlled trials. You, just, you can't tell people to eat 70% of what they want to eat. People 
can't adhere to it. But a few very strong-willed individuals do voluntarily to actually restrict themselves or will volunteer for those kinds of experiments. Obviously, they may not be a random um, selection of the population in the first place. And very interestingly, nearly all of them are men. It's not clear why that is, but there's a big sex difference in um, volunteering for dietary restriction. But taking those limitations, these individuals show many of the uh, very similar features that are seen in the experimental studies with the rhesus monkeys. And I've just put one up there on atherosclerosis. There's a very large number of easily measurable risk factors for atherosclerosis, and nearly all of them are improved by a few years of dietary restriction in humans. So really, the name of the game here is not to put everybody on a diet, it's to find the pathways that mediate these effects, and we think we're onto them with the insulin signaling network, and to find drugs that can do the equivalent of dietary restriction in terms of reducing activity. And again, in 2009, the science here is still very young, a very important paper was studied, uh, was published in Nature, showing that a drug that inhibits the activity of this network can extend lifespan in mice. So this is rapamycin. Um, it's a drug that's actually approved for human use. It's used as an immunosuppressant during tissue transplantation, and it's also chemotherapeutic against cancer. And it basically lowers the activity of something called TOR kinase, which is part of the signaling network. And very interestingly, if they fed this drug to mice, just starting in middle age, so when the mice were already quite well on at 600 days, they could produce an increase in lifespan in both sexes. So it looks as though, at least in mice, this drug can interfere with the aging process, which has started to make people very interested in the possibility that perhaps rapamycin has a broader therapeutic range than we think it might do. So at the moment, it's only used for the two conditions I mentioned in humans, but perhaps it can do other things too. And some of the experimental studies are starting to support that. So don't bother about the details of this information here. And those of you who are familiar with vaccination biology will, will see immediately what's going on. What this study showed was that when mice get old, like old humans, they don't respond very well to vaccination against flu. In fact, they're just like unvaccinated young animals if you challenge them with the flu virus. However, if you feed them rapamycin for a short period before vaccinating them when they're old, they respond as well as young animals do to the vaccination. So it's turning out to be important in the immune system. It's also turning out that if you feed rapamycin to animal models, so these are mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, so where the toxic protein that's particularly associated uh, with Alzheimer's, amyloid betas expressed in the brain of these mice. By tamping down the activity of this tor kinase with rapamycin, again, one can improve the health of these animals. So this has led to some um, very interesting review articles about, gosh, rapamycin has a very broad therapeutic range, let's start to extend it, and also some early short-term clinical trials in humans looking at whether it can protect against Alzheimer's. I'll just mention one other of these because it might be familiar to you. There's a drug called metformin, which is now the first line of defense against type 2 diabetes. If someone is first diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they're nearly always put on metformin. Um, it originally came from French lilac, and like rapamycin, it can extend lifespan in mice um, and actually also in yeast, worms, and flies. So it's clearly an anti-aging drug in the laboratory animals. And the mice particularly look very like dietary restricted mice. It inhibits the activity of something called, sorry, activates AMP kinase. And as I've said, it's widely prescribed for type 2 diabetes. 
Now, in Tayside, in Scotland, they have exceptionally good patient records for almost everything, including users of metformin. And what they did was a meta-analysis of their data, and they discovered that individuals put on metformin were also protected against a wide range of cancers. Again, exactly what you would expect if this is acting as an anti-aging drug, rather than a therapy for a specific aging-related disease. So I think where all this is pointing is that if we want to protect against aging-related disease, actually we can have a go at the aging process itself. So we're looking at a broad-spectrum preventative medicine here. And to slightly parody what's going on at the moment, we've got the major aging-related diseases. And typically they're studied in different research institutes by people who read different journals, go to different scientific meetings, you know, generally, in the best possible way, lead their lives in parallel. And that goes into the various medical specialities that deal with these diseases. That's been quite extraordinarily successful, and I'm sure it will continue to be. But what I am saying is that there's another way of looking at it, that what we can actually do is to tackle the underlying ageing process if we want to protect against the diseases of ageing. And I think that's where this whole scientific effort is pointing. But it's not going to be without its challenges. If we want to keep people healthier as they age, we, we don't know at the moment, even from the animal models, how long we have to treat them for. It may be possible, as in those mice, to get them when they're already in middle and old age and treat them. But it's also possible that we may have to do it for longer. So we need to know about timing effects, and there are obviously challenges with long-term use of drugs. We may be looking at more than one drug. If we want to tamp down the activity of this pathway in the most advantageous fashion, we may have to go for more than one target. So we'd be looking at a polypole. And that, again, poses challenges for trials. If you're going to give a drug to a lot of people for a very long time, it had better be safe. So there are going to be real safety issues. Clinical trials are incredibly expensive, especially um, if you're trying to look at a random section of the population as opposed to a group that are at risk on the short term of going into Alzheimer's or early risk for cancer because of their own genotype. So trying to look at the whole population is going to be difficult. And I strongly suspect that what's going to happen here is that we're going to see reuse of existing drugs along the lines that I've indicated. The pharmaceutical industry have to come on side, but I think they've, they've done that already. They're very interested in this kind of work. Um, the regulators are going to be a problem. I don't know if any of you noticed NICE last week. Um, the, the epidemiology on the use of statins now is very clear. Everybody should take statins from when they're 50. Um, but the regulator immediately came out and said, we don't think that giving everybody a drug for a long time is a good idea, presumably because of the cash side of things. So it's not going to be without its challenges, but my own view is that this is where this work is headed. And there's a summary of what I've just said, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.